Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Imogen Watson, Work and Inspiration Editor at Campaign. Given most men do not relate to depictions of masculinity they see in media worldwide, today's hot topic is masculinity, as we ask industry experts what more can Adlan do to represent the modern man. But first, we'll start with discussing some recent news with campaign reporter Charlotte Rawlings. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> uh, I know it's August, uh, albeit rainy and, and cold and, and bad, but <laughs> most of Adlan will be currently working away on their Christmas campaigns, um, such as Sachi and Sachi London, who are currently preparing for their debut John Lewis and Partners Christmas campaign. Um, the news this week is they've picked a director. Ooh, yeah, they've uh, chosen <laughs> the French director's collective megaforce. Um, mm. So yeah, they're going to work with Saatchi and Saatchi on the new Christmas ad. Mm. Um, so the group beat Rain Allen Miller, who works through Some Such, and Sam Pilling, who works through Pulse Films in a pitch. Um, and megaforce has worked on some really cool stuff, Burberry yeah. ads, yeah. like open spaces and night creatures. And they also were behind Nike's Men's World Cup ad last year, Footballverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty big. Um, so it's one of those things where like, when you see a name and you're like, oh my God, I actually can't wait to see yeah, what yeah. they do. Because I feel like megaforce brings out like one a year and every time you like you get it in your inbox and you're like, holy shit. Yeah, I really like megaforce. Like I yeah. always associate their stuff with like spectacle and like mm. incredible visuals as well um like we were talking about the lacoste work mm-hmm. earlier where the couple are having the fight and their house like collapses around them like mm. that's one that really sticks in my memory it's beautiful um i want to know how they filmed it like i want to like yeah. see how they pull it all together i think it's movement s- a lot of their stuff is movement if you think of the Burberry open spaces like yeah. it's just graceful and when you see stuff and you want to know how it was made and see mm. the behind the scenes i think that's when you know yeah. you've got something special with the directors mm-hmm. um so also, maybe that kind of hints at what's to come for the John Lewis. Mm. Well, like, you know, like I can't think of any Megaforce work that's particularly tear jerky. So, you know, yeah. we might have a John Lewis ad that's like got a big, very trendy people flying around. I uh, think it'll be like artsy. Artsy. Not to put too much pressure, but yeah. just going by what I've seen. <laughs> this is what we want. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, I think it'll be quite artsy and like mm. a lot of importance placed on like visuals mm. uh, in my John Lewis opinion. products <laughs> yeah of course how could we forget um, but it's also maybe a bit surprising given Saatchi and Saatchi's close relationship with Rain Allen yeah. Miller as well yeah I would just I mean I didn't know who was pitching for it um, but yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're pretty particularly close with her she she was there in Cannes um, with their Saatchi's career showcase um, so yeah we might expect one next year maybe with her yeah uh, I didn't I didn't realise until you told me earlier that she directed Rye Lane mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah yeah, she's very up and coming that was her debut uh, film so she's done a lot of work within advertising so yeah, yeah this isn't her first rodeo I love the crossover like mm. between advertising and like, oh. films it's cool well that's yeah it's a huge part of it because obviously advertising gives money to creatives to be able to go to do these big debut mm, yeah. feature films because I don't think many directors would not admit that that's the aim yeah have um, you seen Roy Lane I actually haven't oh well can't <laughs> oh, talk about it then yeah well for the for the listeners out there that's probably for the best yeah it's, it's really good though it's really best good. Uh, best John Lewis ad it's got to be the bear and the hair hasn't yeah, it yeah yeah I agree I agree it makes me cry every time like when the bear comes out and like its face like lights up and it's either tree. Yeah, but then like, again, and I said this to Aidan McClure, who's um, Wonderhood uh, CCO now, and turns out he was behind it when I told him this. Oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I was like, it really annoys me how like yeah, that would kill the bear. Um, what? What do well, you mean? Like, if you if you wake up a bear during hibernation, like 
Yeah, it's not real though, Imogen. Oh yeah. yeah <laughs> Why are you trying to kill Christmas? I mean, well, Grinch, Grinch well, me. What about you? Bear in the hair. Oh yeah, no, bear in the hair. I, I, I'm partial to a penguin. <laughs> yeah, I'm also so partial. I to do Monty. like Monty penguin. Um, I also um, really liked Edgar the Dragon. I really liked that one too because yeah. it, it was it felt a bit more like there was a lot to it. I think it was the first John Lewis ad that I had actually covered. Um, oh, a special moment for Imogen. Yeah, well, it was exciting because you go to like John Lewis and everyone's like hushing you out and they're like, oh, you can't, you have to put headphones in and it's like you can't tell anyone. And then mm. that's my worst. <laughs> I'm very bad for not telling people stuff. So that that's <laughs> that's a good test for me because I, I literally am the most open book you can get. But yeah. Yeah, for those 24 hours between. Yeah, you can tell that anyone. must have been torture. <laughs> uh, in other news this week, Brewdog Face claims um, that their beer for your grandchildren ad campaign it was an out of home campaign bears a striking resemblance to creative pitched by former retained agency Droga 5 London do 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 I was actually going to say that that was my initial reaction yeah <laughs> I was going to say dun, dun, dun. Um, yeah what happened there catch um, me off on it um, so basically yeah we heard from a number of sources that uh, the the idea behind it which is essentially pushing this idea that it's not beer for grand like grandchildren aren't drinking beer but the premise of like the original idea sources told us were um, that it was ch- uh, beer for children um, children Children, not your grandchildren, not grandchildren. Okay. Um, but very similar premise. The idea that it's for you know the future because of all their sustainability credentials. Mm. Um, you know, if you invest in our beer, we'll plant like loads of trees and we're very good. And the future looks bright. Um, and also heard there was very similar um, artwork, the children's drawing of the burning planet. Brewdog wouldn't comment on record about that. Um, but yeah, it's I've I've talked to a lot of people since this story broke, and it's really opened up this real problem of idea ownership, particularly within the pitching stage of agencies. Yeah. Um, because a lot of work either either the brand takes the idea, they don't pay the agency, and it surfaces one or two years later. Yeah. Or the creative who pitched the original idea might take it to another agency, and then you see that work feature elsewhere. It's it's, it's the sort of thing. Is I wrote a feature like last year. I talked to Brinsley Dresden, who's a partner at Lewis Silkin, and it was brilliant because I just asked him loads and loads of questions. I think he actually regretted doing the interview with me because I was like, <laughs> "Can I get a wrist for this?" Uh, but he's a lawyer and he works within this sort of field um, of just ensuring like your idea ownership and whatnot. And um, but what he said is basically he has a form that he tells agencies to give to brands to say when we're pitching work this mm. is our idea this is da, 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 da. but you know it's, it's it's a great idea but I think agencies kind of don't want to do that particularly if it's a competitive pitch because you know you don't want, you don't want the brand thinking oh god they're going to be a diff- difficult agency or you know it's just it's just that one step further so this is just what happens um, I do understand that though it's kind of like it's, it just feels like a minefield and that you're presenting like all of these ideas. And I know that you did, yeah, the, the feature that you did kind of like exploring the lines between someone blatantly copying an idea and then also just having similar there's inspiration. There's only so many ideas, but then there's loads of ideas. So yeah. It's like I can't decide which one's which. But yeah, Mind you, it is annoying though if someone copies your idea. Oh my God, I'd be livid if someone copied my article. Yeah. Because <laughs> oh. it's just that good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, they don't deserve that credit. Yeah. <laughs> God, I'm coming across a really big head. It is not true. I, oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, it's super interesting. And I, I do think pitch pitching within agencies needs a bit more of a reform. Maybe agencies will be more willing to do it because if it's just the norm that you have to have these forms signed and every time there's a pitch, you have to say, right, these are our ideas. Because yeah. we're an idea like, 
industry. Yeah. Industry's built on ideas sense. and creatives. So this is another one of those podcasts where we put out ideas that people people probably have. A, there's a reason why it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, surely that fixed. We've just fixed Done. the problem. Done. <laughs> right. On that note, thank you, Charlotte. You're welcome. <laughs> Cheers. Buzzing to be here as always, my love. Earlier this summer, director Greta Gerwig delivered a searing social commentary that touched on modern man's insecurities. It's not just women who suffer at the hands of a patriarchal society, it seems. The discussion around masculinity in the media is often framed negatively, with terms like toxic masculinity suggesting there's something fundamentally wrong with being a man, leaving some men confused and ultimately defensive. Advertising, meanwhile, plays a crucial role in creating and projecting masculine ideals, a study conducted by Dove found a mere 7% of men worldwide actually relate to depictions of masculinity they see in media. With this in mind, today we'll be discussing what more can be done to represent modern men. Here to discuss this matter further, I'm delighted to be joined by Laurie Meekin, founder and chief executive of The Others and Me, Sophia Yoresi bodger senior strategist at Analog Folk, Oliver Gibson, strategy partner at BBD Perfect Storm, and David Fanner, a consultant on Ogilvy's Consulting UK Behavioural Science Practice. Sophia, you, you, you wrote about this figure, the 7% in your piece. Were you surprised by that? Yes and no. Uh, I think we can all agree that the portrayal of masculinity in advertising has had a significant impact on how many people perceive and construct gender roles. Um, and I think if we look back at how ads have traditionally portrayed men, a lot of the traits are associated mm. with dominance, emotional stoicism. And I mean, we're talking about um, Barbie, but this idealized Ken type body. Um, so I think if you ask people and you ask men in particular, how they actually feel, how, if they relate to these depictions of masculinity, it's such a small percentage because we've been following a singular narrative so far. I think it's really interesting and it, it kind of goes without saying that men are as diverse as uh, as women are, as diverse as all of us are. And I think two narrow views of any gender are basically um, us overlooking opportunities as businesses and as an industry to make more money, drive more business, drive the economy, as well as overlooking opportunities to help everybody uh, thrive, whatever their gender. And I think it's really important. I always love to start any conversations like this by talking about the business impact that's super important, but also how it's not about one gender being prioritized over another. If we're talking about masculinity, if we're talking about gender equality, it's proven to benefit everybody as well. And I think it's so important to frame it in that context because too often we can jump into talking about masculinity or gender equality and it immediately just feels like we're having a go at mm -hmm. men or creating a kind of us versus them mindset, which is just really damaging to all of mm -hmm. us. Oliver, what would you say these repercussions, these unrealistic ideals have on men? Why, why should we be concerned? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. So um, essentially, I think as Sophia said, you know, the, we've it, traditionally we've created this very monolithic man in in advertising, in media, in culture, athletic, good looking, stoic, sporty, confident, charismatic, well educated, well paid. I, I kind of think the Marlboro Man is a great example of just taking a quintessential iconic cowboy character and saying this is this you know the the, the perfect. American icon and saying this is how you should be and what that does is it creates unrealistic ideals right so then um, and and I guess the broader sense of our role within within 
um, other cultural effects, but they're all they're all playing into one another. And what that does is it says to men, and, and, and broad, more broadly in culture, it says, hey, what, what are men? What do men do? What don't they do? What, what do they think? What don't they think? Men don't cry. Men don't show their emotions. Men don't ask for help. Men, men, um, men are stoic. They can handle pain. They're, they're great in a crisis. And all of that kind of classic Bond-like behavior, which we've seen evolve actually more recently as more women have got involved in the production of those kind of role models, but what they what they do is they actually leave men in a bit of a crisis and a bit of a struggle because they're not as connected to the local community. They're not as able to connect with people emotionally. They're kind of taught that they're not supposed to. And actually, I think what we're seeing more and more now is people are realizing that, hey, uh, you can and you should, and maybe it's a good idea. And I suppose what, what that does ladder up to ultimately, I'm not saying it's uh, the only cause, but there is, there is a kind of, I think, a correlation and causality that... Um, we do see some pretty dramatic numbers around um, loneliness, around depression, around mental health issues. Uh, I think ultimately the the worst statistic around it is the suicide rates, which which are pretty dire. Um, I think seventy five percent of all suicides in the UK are are among men, um, and they're about three times higher among men than they are among women. So. Um, I, I loved Laurie's point around, you know, this isn't about men versus women and the, who has it worth and everything. But I think um, sometimes uh, the plight of, of the privileged man can actually be overlooked a little bit. And, and they do, they are um, undergoing their own kind of crises as well. So, uh, yeah, I think ultimately it, it does ladder up to something pretty significant and pretty, pretty important. Mm. I think there's something um, there's something really interesting as well about that. And Oliver, as you were saying, the the how difficult it is for men to feel that they can even engage in this conversation, I think, is a really fascinating thing. Either because it can feel like a threat or an accusation. Sometimes it can feel like it's not really relevant to men. Um, or it can feel like a show of weakness. And again, one of the things I think that's fascinating about the project of masculinity, how we perform, how we teach boys and men to perform masculinity, it's about being independent rather than collaborative. It's about being top dog and not showing vulnerability. So ironically, even the way we encourage men to behave makes it more difficult to engage in conversations about how they might want to kind of progress and make, build a, a system that works better for all of us. So it's a really difficult area to explore. This is something that came up quite extensively, actually, when we spoke to men on um, a recent campaign where we, we spent just hours and hours immersed with them. And we found one of the key words is pressure. Men feel so much pressure now more than ever because they still have all the traditional expectations put on them to be that strong figure, to look after the family, to provide for them, which is to some extent maybe built in. But then they also have these added pressures on top. And actually, a lot of men feel that they are quite left behind right now because we're having all these discussions, which is us as professionals. But then there's a huge cohort of men who just haven't had these discussions at all. And they're now struggling to find a world where they feel relevant. And I really think that we, we have to look at this more closely because otherwise we'll spin out into some reinforcing feedback loop, which doesn't necessarily represent what men want or what even is the reality of men? Mm. Not to make it men versus women, but it feels like there's been a lot of progress in, you know, stamping out harmful, harmful gender stereotypes for women, less so for men. Um, would you agree? Why is this? If so. I think it's a really important point. And sort of the, 
the basis of a lot of my work is about looking at the relationship between the two. We can't solve the issue by looking at one half of the puzzle. Um, and I think it's really important. What I've discovered is there are a few areas and a few issues that make this really difficult and exacerbate the problems. Um, one is that sense that, well, surely we've kind of come so far already, aren't we there yet? And I think it's really important to recognize there's a significant numbers of men out there in the world and actually in most businesses who don't like to say it for fear of cancel culture, but are feeling a little bit resentful, feeling a little bit left behind. Um, and interestingly, they, they appear in even bigger numbers in Gen Z than they do amongst men of my generation. So men who are saying things like men who stay at home to look after their kids aren't a real man, or I don't think women make great leaders, uh, or gender equality has gone too far and it's actually us who are being discriminated against now. I think it's really important that we out that because without having those open conversations and acknowledging those feelings, we're never going to get anywhere. Um, but yeah, I think the other thing that's kind of really important is there's just a lot of blind spots and assumptions because we've been socialized for decades or centuries to feel in certain ways and to believe certain things. And both men and women shortcut to those assumptions a lot of the time. And it's just going to take a little while and some active energy, I think, to start unpicking those in a climate of trust and openness and positivity uh, rather than kind of fear and frustration and misinformation, which is what we see a lot on what some of the extreme ends of the manosphere are really um, are really kind of exploiting at the moment, those vulnerabilities that, that men have and the fact that we don't feel able to talk about it. Yeah, I think, I think it's a tricky balance, right? Ultimately, we're all working towards it, um, equality. There's been a lot of inequality and in order to redress that balance, you can empower women, and that's obviously a good thing. Um, and empowering women is an active, positive, tangible marketing kind of strategy that kind of is, is relatively easy. And then when you look at the the opposite, it looks like you're disempowering men, right? In order for women to to win, men think they have to lose, and that is a very complicated thing. To 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 so first of all, to be championing men in a time of the Me Too crisis and of other much more um, seemingly significant and important crises would seem a little bit odd. Um, and then actually trying to evolve that definition of men, psychologists would say that ultimately you're disempowering them. It's, it's tantamount to castration, right? And then and then you get a huge reaction of feeling villainized or. Um, essentially degendered de in a way and desexualized and all sorts of things that lead to this very defensive and ultimately um, some people would say regressive or responsive kind of action and i think um for me i think one of the i think laurie touched on it earlier it's not about women being against men it's not about feminists hating men it's about uh, the patriarchy, right? A system that's in place for the convenience of men, but ultimately is damaging to women. And actually what we're seeing more and more is damaging to men. And so if, if we can help men to realize that this construct of masculinity is actually not doing us any favors and that we're actually free to define who we want to be beyond the, the traditional constructs of the ideal man, then actually we'll all be a lot happier and we'll all be a lot a lot healthier. And that can only be a good thing. And I, I do think that that kind of fundamental reframing of 
men versus women, Venus and Mars, but actually just essentially uh, feminists and uh, new machos being essentially realizing that the patriarch isn't working for us, essentially. So that's, but it's very complicated. It's not, it's, it's definitely very complicated for, I think, marketers and brand managers and advertisers to take a take an easy swing at. I think mm-hmm. toxic, the, the Gillette toxic masculinity mm-hmm. was a great example mm-hmm. of that. When they did try and take take a pop at what what is the unhealthy construct of masculinity, and and a huge amount of debate and um, complexity coming coming from that kind of action. Mm, I totally agree with that, and it makes me think of the ethos that we should all be aspiring to is this notion of gender neutrality and not making assumptions that men or women are feminine or masculine, and really reject this idea of gender essentialism. Um, and it, it feels like today, in today's society, we have really moved towards individualism and this idea that there is one form of masculinity, there's one form of femininity. And from both sides, that always risks alienating people who don't fit in that box. And the majority will never fit in one version of what masculinity means. And so really, as marketeers, we need to be widening those constructs, delivering new types of narratives for men and for women and recognizing that the patriarchy doesn't positively impact anyone. We feel this very strongly um, in the behavioral science practice where we, we do a lot of cognitive profiling, which is going beyond demographics, understanding you know, how does your brain really work and how do we actually influence you? And I think part of the problem here is the language. When we use a word like gender, we have male, female, or man, woman, we're using that as a sort of a folder for a bunch of very related ideas beneath that folder when actually what we need to be referring to is what those traits are specifically. So when we talk about men and we talk about um, being masculine, masculine traits, assertiveness, why not just talk about assertiveness? Why do we have to put the, the gendered lens on these things? Another thing we're finding with men is that it's, it's not even about homogenizing men and women. When we talk to men, especially the ones who feel most disaffected, most left behind, they say, well, surely we should be celebrating those attributes that are traditionally masculine that appear more in men and other traits which appear more in women. And they would say that why do we have to homogenize these? Why can't we actually celebrate these things more? So I think there's there's another conversation to be had there about should we be homogenizing things or should we be just looking at the traits and celebrating it across both genders regardless of gender? Uh, David, I think you're absolutely right. And I love you talking about and using the language of traits rather than uh, it being a kind of categorical binary and like the way we've been culturally coded, the way we've all been socialized is a, is a huge kind of impact on all of this. I think there's a couple of things I'd just love to pick up on. One is I completely agree that uh, we should be talking in less binary terms. We should be talking in less... Um, you know, kind of harsh black and white terms as if there's some sort of, you know, existential truth that someone who's born into a male body will only have characteristics that have been coded as masculine, etc. But I think it's too early yet to get to the point, and I know none of you were saying this, but I just think it's important to say it's too early to get to the point where we go, hey, there's no such thing as gender, just treat everybody as people. Because there's enormous amounts of evidence that say when we think we're treating people just as people, we're actually behaving as if uh, we've built the world for a default male. And unless we acknowledge that, um, we're not going to be able to address things like products, services, medicines, etc., being um, 
being made in such a way that they work much better for men than they do for women. So I think outing some of those blind spots is still really, really important. Um, but I think the other thing, and Oliver, just to go back to your point, I think it's so interesting to go, one of the biggest barriers I think for us to overcome is that sense that when we talk about broadening masculinity and making it possible for men to be able to express all kinds of things that are coded as either more or less masculine or feminine, um, that's a broadening of what men can be, but it feels very much like it's a narrowing. It feels like we're kind of the gender equality project is telling men they need to be less than, they need to stop doing things, they need to, you know, be emasculated, they need to be less themselves. And I think finding ways of being able to overcome those and actually make it clear that what we're all talking about, I think, is a world where everyone's able to express themselves in whatever way works best for them. And that's a positive and freeing thing. It's not about um, it's not about kind of telling men to do less of what they already do or feel ashamed of qualities that they do have that can actually be really um, productive and positive and useful when they when they manifest in any gender. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I think there's a tendency to oversimplify this this sort of binary. Uh, it's, a, it's a replacing, it's a rejecting the old and replacing it with a new. And actually, I, I like your point of broadening. I think um, we've done some research with um, clients, and actually, it's a really complicated moment because all of the rules that were not good rules, but they were in place made everyone very clear about how things worked, what a man was, how a man behaved. And certainly, for example, in the dating scene, you, you would open the door, you would pay the bill, you would make the first move. And uh, now no, no, those things that used to be called chivalrous are now potentially called called aggressive and bigoted. And and what's happening is actually uh, not just men, but women are also saying, well, hold on a minute. We, we do quite like some of those typically apparently no longer healthy, toxic attributes. They still, they, you know, there's still there's still a role for certainly uh, strength and um, uh, generosity and things like that that, that that are still healthy. And I think sometimes we na- we we narrow it down to just saying out with the old man and in with the new man. And I think, like, as you said, it's it's much more about broadening um, the the f- and, and having a much more fluid definition of uh, what you choose to be, what mm-hmm. anyone chooses to be. And I think enabling men to feel comfortable adopting qualities and seeing the value in qualities that are traditionally coded as feminine. So vulnerability is an incredibly powerful thing. Uh, Empathy is an incredibly powerful thing. They make, you know, helps people make better leaders, um, better professionals and better parents and lovers and all kinds of things. And at the moment, because we've sort of coded those as feminine and also had centuries of telling men that feminine stuff is inferior, so men definitely shouldn't want to go anywhere near that, it means that we're making it difficult for men to who are who often have incredibly brilliant skills in those areas, but we teach them since they were little boys that they shouldn't be doing that and they shouldn't be expressing those things because that's not what men do and brackets they're girly things, so they're kind of inferior. Mm. David, you worked recently on the Mayor of London's um, anti-misogyny campaign. Can you talk our listeners through the thinking behind your strategy that you took with that? Sure. So um, last year, Have a Word campaign was very, um, very successful. There's a lot of change uh, in policy, um, funding and behaviour as well. And we found that essentially men are broadly motivated to call out their mates. 
but they just don't know how. We found that actually two thirds really struggle with what we call a capability barrier. So they have the opportunity to call out their mates. They go to the pub with them. They spend time with them. They're broadly motivated to call out their mates when they're being misogynistic to women because all the evidence suggests that violence against women does start with words. So calling out these words early does prevent things escalating later. But there was a big struggle. So they commissioned us last September, the behavioral science team, to essentially look into what are the barriers and drivers of men speaking up to call out their mates. And so we did some deep, deep research here. We spent hours and hours in pubs, uh, gyms, barbershops, in male-dominated spaces, talking to men about issues like this, asking them where is the line between banter, harm, humor. Um, and by the way, we, we, can't, <laughs> we can't agree that, but we will feel it. And what we really came up with was that actually in order to essentially influence a bystander to influence their mate, taking a bystander um, approach, which does seem to work, um, we need to do this respectfully in a way that doesn't cause psychological reactants because you can't influence a mate to call out his mate by shaming him because, you know, you went to school with these people and, you know, some people are saying, well, surely you should just cancel them. You shouldn't be like, nonsense. You're not going to cancel your mate you've been friends with for 20 years because they said a joke, which was perhaps a bit off color. So we need to work with men, not against them. And so that's where we suggested we needed some sort of light gesture for them to use in the moment, either a piece of language or a gesture. And that's where we came up with the idea of mate, which we found men already use. They say, mate, come on, or mate, leave it out. Or they say bro or bruv, whatever they want to say. All, more people understood how mate was used. We slightly elongated it with a, sort of a mate, because when you elongate it, there's a bit more respect. And then this led to the, the campaign, say mate to a mate, when the behavior towards women goes too far. And... You know, this we tested with men. We have them and women. We have them use it for a week. Um, they liked it. They said it's created a fusion, created a buffer, a very helpful tool for men. Um, and then we launched it back in, well, actually, we started seeing this interculture in May using comedians who are great messengers, um, getting the word mate out of there. The GIF has been used a quarter of a billion times. Um, and then we launched it in July properly and it absolutely exploded it, um, in good ways and bad. Mm. But for the last few weeks, we've had millions and millions of people talking about misogyny and uh, the role that men can play in it. So really, that is the shorthand of where we've been mm -hmm. for coming up a year now. Yeah, it very much sparked a debate online. So what, what would you respond to any of the criticisms? What would you say to that? Well, I think the first one is I care really about behavior change. So if there is criticism, that is, that's valid. And first of all, it's great we're having this conversation I also don't mind particularly if our campaign is a bit of a sacrificial lamb and it means that we then say, okay, mm -hmm. maybe that's not exactly it, but what is? Actually, that conversation about what can we do. But then I, I suppose the ultimate one is, well, does it change behavior? Does this help men call out their mates? And in some ways, actually, the fact that this has become almost a bit of a reference, almost a meme, say mate, this has massively lowered the, the bar for using it. So that is such a great KPI for us. We had a lovely story from a colleague who was out and totally unrelated, someone said, mate, when someone was talking about women. And what followed was a huge conversation for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they talked about the fact that this was now it's, it's a meme almost, we could say mate. And what it does, it places a big red flag on a conversation. So even if you didn't then talk about it, if we hear someone say mate over the course of an entire day, three times, we start to actually, why are we saying mate? We're joking about it. So actually, I think 
it's been a, an amazing conversation starter. And I think that is the point to land that late is not the solution, the ultimate solution, but it's certainly part of one. And it is such a good conversation opener. Mm. I would call that a huge, huge success. Mm. To broaden it out a bit, I guess with with anti misogyny campaigns, they're obviously very difficult, and 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 often the criticisms are, you know, messaging comes across as patronising. W- what would you guys advise as the sort of best way to avoid that sort of type of messaging? And 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 the best way to, as you just touched in there, it's it's not about just saying the word mate; it's sparking conversation. So, what is just sort of best approaches for for tackling this? I think, can I just say um, thank you and well done for the campaign, first of all. I think it's really important, as you say, that things are being tackled and that it's generating these kind of conversations. I think in terms of the patronising question, I'd sort of want to ask, like, patronising to whom about what? Because I think... I think taking an evidence-based approach to all of this is really, really, really important. And for me, I think what's really clear, David, is that campaign is a very specific campaign targeting a very specific issue amongst men who are motivated to act but don't have the capability to act when they're amongst their friends. Um, And I think I can... (laughs) the research that's been done on it, I trust that. And there's a bit of me that says if somebody else finds that patronizing, but they're not part of the target audience, well, so be it. Let's have a conversation then about what they'd say or how they'd behave. But I think being really clear that we don't expect every bit of work to work against every single audience and every single problem is just so important. I think we need to free ourselves up for that. Otherwise, we just beat ourselves up and and never do anything. Um and I think I do think more broadly, though, there is a really big issue about how do we engage in these conversations in a way that either doesn't vilify men or patronize them. And again, I've seen lots of conversations about various things when when people talk about the crisis of masculinity and men are lost and things like that, that treating men as if they're little lost puppies or making it feel like they're sort of, you know, oh, poor little things. It's so sad for them. Again, there's a whole bunch of men who may find that incredibly triggering. So I think I think we need to just make sure we're really clear each time about who are we talking to, what are we talking about, what problem are we trying to solve, and work with the things that motivate those men in that situation to deal with that problem and not think there's not going to be a silver bullet that solves everything for everybody in one go. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the campaign is brilliant because it tackles low-level misogyny and it's that first step in providing some sort of solution and some sort of dialogue Um, I think I also think that the problem is so vast and it's so big that there needs to be various steps to really tackle it. And Laurie, to your point, like there's not one single solution. And if we're starting a conversation about that, then we're moving in the right direction. I think for me, in terms of um, messaging and driving action, anything that where a campaign has an action point at the end of it, I'm thinking about the Gymshark shark. deload barbershop where there was a a campaign right at the beginning to allow men to comfortably talk about their problems and talk about mental health we're focusing more about mental health right now but then they already they also opened up a space um for men to offload and have a chat while receiving a trim in a barbershop as well as hosting panel talks and um essentially taking the conversation further so i think with these campaigns, because they are such important, vast topics and so nuanced and complex, 
there needs to be several steps in order to ensure that the conversation is continuing, but also ensure that behavior change does actually take place um, and we can observe how that takes place. That barbershop point is such a lovely point. We find barbers are really incredible messengers because it's one of the few places that men really are just open. And it's a form of therapy, actually, in a way that works for men. And so that's why we spend time with barbers, because they actually really know men. And I think another thing we've learned from how things actually spread through populations is you need to hear it from diverse sources, where we assume that the way things spread through a network is through the central person. Um, it's a theory of diffusion, really, which is you know, it's how you spread a disease. You put it in London, put it in New York. But actually, the way you spread things which are risky is around the edges. And you need not just a big dosage, but diverse sources of things. You need to hear it from your barber. You need to hear it from your your father. You need to hear it from your Uber driver, your barista. It's only when you hear these things from a few diverse sources beyond the expected ones, even comedians, that you start to actually change the attitudes that you have. So that's another thing where it really matters. We need to engage more people beyond the expected voices. Otherwise, people will see this as a lefty liberal woke thing. And then there'll be a system immune response, which will squash any innovation. This is absolutely essential. We, we frame this as broadly as possible and engage wide voices. I think, um, I, th- I mean, one of the things about your campaign, I think the, the central premise was about intervening with antisocial behavior. And that's a, that's a really tricky brief, right? There aren't many brands and marketers who are saying that's the initial start point is we need to intervene with antisocial behavior. So I suppose there, you're, there was always a much higher risk of feeling patronizing and being slightly um, awkward with, with that kind of a, a business objective, I suppose. I think for, for most marketers, I think, I think to avoid being patronizing, I think, I think the, so much of marketing is based on a, on a sort of fundamental premise of selling stuff and promising that your life will be better and this is the life that you can achieve if you, if you experience this brand um, or telling people, you know, this is, this is the kind of person you could be or should be and you should aspire to being this. And I think um, more broadly for brands, kind of avoiding those traditional traps and um, creating the space for a conversation about uh, what could be. So I, th- I, think the, I think the conversation part is really critical to modern marketing. So stop, stop promising things, start questioning things, start ask, just asking questions. It's hard to be patronizing if you're asking a conversation and hosting a discussion. Um, and then ultimately kind of uh, leading a journey rather rather than prescribing an endpoint, I think is a, a good kind of principles uh, moving forward, especially with a, in at this particular moment where I think we don't have all the answers and it is very fluid. And as, as we said earlier, it's not about breaking an old definition and creating a new one. It's about going on a journey together. So I think those those for us are key principles that we've kind of outlined in our in our report. Mm. We're running out of time and it's such a huge area to be talking about and there's so much progress to be to be made. So why don't we sort of round it up with each of you giving your sort of best top tip uh, how agencies and brands can be more active in terms of, you know, um, shifting this narrative and, 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 you know, representing modern man better. I think I'd, I'd actually, mine might be a call to action given that, given that we don't have much time, but... Um, I think there's a, there are a lot of great resources out there already, and if you're an agency, who's I'm not, we're not going to give you a quick solution now, but um, it's about engaging in the topic. I think you know the ASA have put in um, uh, rules and guidelines of how not to do damage 
But I think as an industry, we can do much better to aspire towards actually creating a healthier narrative, not just not just creating a more damaging one. And uh, one of the ways, one of the resources available to do that is actually the Unstereotype Alliance. And they have a uh, kind of unstereotype marketing framework, which I just don't know if enough people know about or are um, sharing with their agencies. But if we, if we as an industry want to create these more healthy narratives, gender narratives, then that's incumbent upon every planner, creative, producer, um, and account person to, to understand and engage in the topic. And so um, the Unstereotype Alliance do have a um, resource. It's called the Three Ps. And it's, a, it's actually a quite a sophisticated but simple model that allows people to think about um, how how ultimately gender is being portrayed in advertising. And I think the more people that we're going to essentially engage in the kind of training and tools that are available, um, then the more uh, <laughs> listening to podcasts like this and actually just engaging <laughs> in the topic. Uh, I, you know, I know we're all busy, but uh, I think uh, for me, I think it's a it's a it's kind of a hygiene factor. Given as we talked about at the top, um, the implications that this can have uh, for for people's not just men, but actually for for their health and well-being of, of everyone. So, Yeah, I agree 100% with all of that. I think for me, some of the kind of really key things are about, as you were just saying, Oliver, understanding the benefits of all of this. It's a benefit for business and gender equality is a benefit for all of us at an economic, a business, a personal, social, cultural level. We're all going to be winners if we do it. And that means it's everybody's job. It's not just a marginal thing. I think, David, again, to your point about kind of how it, how messages and understanding grows, it can be through, it needs to be through like a million different touch points. So I think another thing is to go, not just thinking about gender when that's the subject matter, whether it's about masculinity itself or misogyny or shaving, but in everything we do, everything we do, taking a gender lens to it and going, how can we use uh, like looking at gender stereotypes and assumptions and norms, how can we be really explicit about that and then go, what would happen if we broadened those and how would that give us competitive advantage, right? Because we're businesses. We need to be able to keep taking it back to how's that going to make our work better as well. And then the other one thing that I would suggest, I think a lot of the time our industry is brilliant and our work is brilliant when it uses humor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I hear a lot is fear about using humor these days because of a kind of fear of a backlash or cancel culture. And you can't say anything these days. And I was only joking. Well, I think thinking about humor as a way of dismantling some of these limiting structures and assumptions and biases could be really, really helpful. Like one of my personal faves is, is Peter Crouch when he was asked, um, I'm sure you guys all know this, what would you have been, Peter, if you weren't a footballer? And he goes, oh, probably a virgin. And I just think men using humor to shine a light on a whole load of things in a way that makes him look fantastic, makes all of us feel closer together and gets cut through. We know that humor is incredibly effective in ads as well. So I think it's a really underused tool uh, in this whole area. Yeah. So I think from my perspective, it's so important to remember the power that advertising has on society and and how it has the power to serve as this indicator of what society considers to be socially acceptable and also socially desirable. And from a strategist point of view, um, we can help shape more 
inclusive societal norms, challenge negative stereotypes of masculinity, and really also motivate people to drive their own behavioral change and examine their motivations and promote healthy behavior. So the first thing I think about is that we are so used to these traditional stereotypes of men. And as a strategist, we can help promote more softer and positive um, depictions of masculinity in more delicate or feminine ways to be a man. And I also think advertising becomes much more interesting when we really acknowledge that men can be soft and also can be emotions. Um, and the second thing I would say is just to be diverse in your thinking, be diverse in your consumer segmentation, your demographic splits, um, showcase all types of men, all types of races, all types of bodies. There's a current conversation about um, the, the, the role for bodies, especially following the Barbie movie. Um, and I think we need to ensure that we are embracing that within this conversation as well. Just love all these points. Um, <laughs> definitely chimes with me this, the thinking in systems, considering well, what is this a part of and thinking beyond even media, but recognizing that we are all part of the system and that we as advertisers have a role in that system, I think is first of all fantastic. But honestly, the biggest thing about how to be more active, I would just say is spend time with men. Honestly, that extra 5k to get to methnography, to go to some pubs, even £100 to walk down to the pub and go talk to men, go to barber shops, just actually engage with real people and ideally get out of London because I do think we're in a bubble. Mm. If we all did that and we all actually engage with it, I think our work would be so much better and I think it would just represent men and women so much better because we'd also get in the privileged position of seeing both sides and all sides of the argument rather than just our own. So I would say that 100% just really get out there in the real world and immerse yourself um, with real people. Mm -hmm. Go down the pub. <laughs> um, <laughs> cheers to that <laughs> thank you all so much for joining today thank you thank you thank you, thank you. it's been a great pleasure that's all we have time for thanks to laurie sophia oliver david and charlotte and thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing please visit our website campaignlive.co.uk details of our subscriptions are available at www.campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership if you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket Studio Manager Nav Pal and also our producer Aidan Lyons for Rethink Audio, and also you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the Campaign team, goodbye. <laughs>